Hey guys, as a reminder, you can watch the video of this podcast at www.walterarms.com slash Walter Radio. Today we're going to be talking to Scott Jedlinski. It's going to be an awesome episode, so stick around. Guns, gear, and training tips from the best instructors around the world. Walter Arms presents Walter Radio. Hey guys, how's it going? My name is Chris. Welcome to this episode, episode number six of Walther Radio. Today we have a wonderful guest for you, uh, but first and foremost, this episode, just like all other episodes of Walther Radio, is brought to you by the Walther 30-Day Money Back Guarantee. It is the guarantee that allows you to find just about any Walther pistol that you like. You can shoot it for up to 30 days, and if you decide you don't like it, maybe you'd like uh, you know a different size of PDP, maybe you'd like the PPK and you bought the PK380 or something like that. Uh, you can send that back to us, and we will refund 100% of your purchase price up to MSRP. We will send you a shipping label, so you're not going to be out shipping, and we will also refund the tax that you paid on that item. Uh, it's one of the best guarantees in the industry. It's our favorite, personally, uh, and that is it. That is a Walther 30-day money-back guarantee. All right, on to our very special guest, no stranger to the Walther family. We love him very much. Uh, he is a master class shooter in USPSA. He is a brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He is the holder of the 15th fast drill coin, the fourth .1 elite standards coin uh, from Donovan Moore at .1 Tactics. Uh, and he's also trained amongst thousands and thousands of great Americans. He's trained people in all sorts of uh, law enforcement units like Pentagon ERT, U.S. Marshal Service, uh, SWAT teams from uh, Chicago, all, all over the United States. Border Patrol, uh, Houston Narcotics, just all kinds of different law enforcement agencies there. Who did I forget? Scott Jedlinski uh, on that list. How are you doing today, sir? I'm well. I'm well. That, that, that covers it. A whole bunch of other ones. But that's good. All good. Okay. All right. Yeah. Glad, we, glad we got that right on the first try. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you are in North Carolina now, correct? Yes. Outside How's of Charlotte. down there? Uh, it's hot today, but mainly amazing. Uh, it's about 97 today. It's slightly humid. But beyond that, man, uh, Charlotte's great. Nice. Where's your next uh, batch of classes going? Uh, so I have one at uh, the Range Complex, formerly Tiger Swan, uh, Autryville, outside of Fayetteville. And then after that, uh, three classes in a row in various areas in Ohio, two classes at uh, Lebanon City PD outside of Indianapolis, back to back. Uh, then the class with Donovan Moore, and then the quest at Walther's sponsoring with AJZ and Brian Hill, and on and on and on. So One of the busiest men in the industry, for sure. Um, yeah. So let's talk about why that is. You're one of the most popular red dot experts. Um, and that's why I'm, that's the reason that I'm sure most people will have heard of you at this point is because of your expertise with the red dot pistol. Um, let's talk about some red dot myths. Cause if you walk into any gun store in the United States and you listen to the guys, you know, that kind of congregate around the counter, hang out there all day, they'll tell you that red dots are slow up close. Red dots are bad. Red dots fail. Um, can you address some of your favorite red dot myths and why they can maybe be put to bed? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole red dots fail, I would say five years ago, you know, that was up for debate, right? And then the classic answer would be, well, everything fails, right? You know, the classic thing of Aaron Cowan's drop test, which has kind of been a standard for the industry. Well, take your irons and drop them on concrete three times, see what happens, you know what I mean? So there's that back and forth. Now, I don't think there's... That is not a viable argument, you know, from your most expensive optics out there, which are the new Trigicon, the RMR HD, and the uh, Trigicon RCR, all the way down to the CNH uh, competitive one, you know, from your 800 to your 300 bucks, man, I've beaten the crap out of all of those, and they all survive for their intended purposes. So you really can't say that they're not durable anymore. Uh, I'll put my optic against your uh fiber optic front sight any day of the week you know what i mean um you know the other thing was uh battery life you know are you going to trust your life to anything that could fail with a battery well what do you got on your carbine you know things like that you don't hear that too much anymore because that's been just fought ad nauseum uh but the other thing is the cost to entry you know um 
you know, you have a guy with this amount of budget, he can't afford a red dot, but he feels he can afford a red. I was like, so what? Then do what you want to do. You know what I mean? Um, that's not a myth. That's a common objection to it. But these days, man, you can get working pistols that are optics ready. I mean, I was just visiting my buddy Tom Victor over Palmetto State, and they got that dagger. It's like 300 bucks, optics ready, and the gun runs. So you really don't have an excuse that now you got to get a gun and then you got to get it milled and then you get, you know, they need a hundred carry gun and blah, blah, blah. All those are gone. Even, you know, uh, you know, we're on our Walther podcast here and I'm talking about another company, but that being said. It's okay. I'll edit that out later. It's the magic yeah, of digital audio. Exactly. But, uh, you know, even our guns are super affordable along with other great manufacturers that have super affordable guns. So, you know, the whole myth of that there's a huge, uh, barrier to entry, uh, uh, it just isn't there anymore, right? The other one is that you're going to have to, if you shot 500,000 rounds with irons, you're going to have to shoot 500,001 with the dot just to be the same proficiency. That's baloney. That is baloney. That's because the 500,000 reps you did before were without uh, uh, principle or technique. Go to a good guy, any good guy out there that has a specific path to uh, learning how to see your red dot every time, tracking the recall, tracking and transition, and you'll be up and running in a couple of hours. Gotcha, gotcha. So uh, it's interesting that you brought up, you know, the battery thing about, well, what do you have on your carbine? Uh, what do you say to the objection to people would say like, well, I didn't have to take a red dot class for my carbine. Why would I have to take a red dot class for a pistol? I'll tell you exactly what my buddy Matt Hoffman said at the FBI. We didn't take them because they weren't available, but we should have. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so you talked a little bit then about the new Trijicon optics. Uh, haven't got to try any uh, personally yet. I'm sure you'll yep. be sending one my way very soon. As soon as uh, I get my <laughs> second one from them. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, what, what is your current gear setup? What do you use at classes right now? Uh, so I have the two. Um, right now, I just switched over from the RMR HD, which is the open emitter, right? Uh, for those of you that are familiar, imagine an RMR and an SRO had a baby, and you have the RMR HD, right? Uh, I've done my testing on that. There's nothing else I can do with that one, so I took that off. So now uh, I put on the Trijicon RCR, which is the enclosed uh, emitter uh, with the uh, footprint. We're going to put that through its spaces more than I've already done when I did the media day for Trijicon. Uh, and we're going to put that through its spaces and beat the crap out of it and, and kind of go from there. I'm sure it's going to pass with flying colors. You have that one. And then um, on my other one, I guess, I, am I allowed to show guns on this thing or what? Yeah. Okay. All right. Here we go. Yeah, it's gun podcast. All right. So here's the EDC with the uh, RCR on there. Everybody see that, right? So there's that. Are you going to dive into me. exactly what all's done to that PDP? Because I'm kind of excited about it. Oh, we can, we can. And then on the uh, the five inch, which is I'm you know using for uh, when I get back into it, either carry optics or limited optics, right? Just take off the magwell and the ported barrel. Uh, this is the five inch PDP, and this has the um, the uh, competition uh, optic from uh, CNH. Probably the best value at 300 bucks, probably the best value there is on the market right now for a good quality optic. Cool. Cool. Yep. So go go through that PDP and, uh, you know, kind of talk a little bit about what all's done to it because that's not Which one? The first one? Shelf PDP. Yeah. The I'm, I'm first more, one? Your carry one first. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's be saying, all right, internet. gone. <laughs> First thing you're going to notice about this one um, is that we've got some serrations in the uh, extra Terran, you know, caulking serrations that comes with the PDP. Just to make it a little bit lighter, we've got some uh, window cuts in there. And then on the top, you've got the uh, Lucky 7 ported barrel, right? With that, help a little bit with the uh, snappiness of any uh, 9mm gun. Obviously, the Trigicon RCR. Uh, his uh, stippling, which is probably the most aggressive stippling on the face of the earth, all the way down. Uh, my personal thing, you know how I hate beaver tails on plastic guns, so he, uh, he uh, shaves that down and also uh, creates just a little bit uh, smoother of a transition. So when the thumb drops, when I do my claw grip uh, out of appendix, it just drops instead of having to uh, have an edge on there or anything. Uh, we got rid of all the finger grooves and thinned that out just a little bit. Uh, we get rid of the little shelf 
that's on uh, the mag release there. Um, it has the uh, Fox trigger from Overwatch Precision, under stippling, metal groove, or I'm sorry, memory groove on the uh, trigger guard. You got the Parker Mount Machine Magwell and a Surefire. And uh, on the internals there, we have a stainless steel um, uh, enclosed uh, uh, guide rod. Uh, from AJZ to a practical performance that uses Glock springs, and that's a 13-pound spring. And that's it. Okay, and I noticed the, you, uh, said, uh, yep. you said he and we a few times. You're referring to uh, Vinny at Monsoon Tactical, who is oh, I'm uh, sorry. Yep. a friend of ours as well. But this is yep. the uh, – is all of this included on – he has like his MSP Pro setup yeah. that he'll do to a PDP. And that's, yep, that's yep. This, this is the Pro model. Gotcha, yeah. Yep, I, yep. I, is that the one that I shot? It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Com- comically include- soft shooting gun. Yep. It doesn't include the magwell. Doesn't include the trigger. Doesn't include the surefire. Doesn't include the optic. But everything else is on there, including the cruel kind of. Uh, I don't know what you call that. It's like a burnt bronze hardened. That's like a Cerakote look. Yeah, but it's yeah. not. It's just. It's just. Uh, it's just Cerakote. But the way he does it, man, and you know, the more it gets beat up, the cooler it actually looks. So. Yep, yeah, there's that. Yeah, he does excellent work. He's uh, he's actually the first person for Walther fans out there. I think he's the first person that we're aware of anyway who's been able to mount an optic on a PPK. So shout out to Vinny. Yeah. On Soon Tactical. Yep. Uh, we've got yep, some yep, cool yep. stuff in the works with Vinny as well. So, uh, you know, we hope he's doing all right over there in Ohio. So can you kind of give us a few things like the uh, imagining that a beginner is listening to this podcast. They just went out. They bought their first PDP or other optics ready gun. They put their first dot on it. And uh, they're looking for kind of like that low-hanging fruit that they can pick off the branch right at their next range trip. Um, what do you think that that's going to be? And is it anything that you can just describe audibly? Sure. Without um, having well, to be there. It's, I mean, finding the dots always going to be the thing, right? If you have uh, so many thousands of rounds or years looking for your iron sights, you've been classically taught to look for that uh, front, hard front sight picture. Now, now you simply just need to go back to the way you've already been seeing things, right? And that's one focal plane shooting, target focus, you know, things of that nature, right? Uh, The problem is, so what I'm telling you to do is when you're driving, look at the road, right? What you've been told to do in the same analogy is, nope, look at the, look at the front of your hood. You know what I mean? So uh, hard front sight focus, right? So I'm telling you, just look at the road, look at your surroundings. That's what it is. And you got to rewind that. Um, the dot is generally in a couple of places if you can't find it, right? Uh, depending on the angle of your gun, depending how you present, it's either going to be high, right? Uh, because of the grip angles of the gun, you just need to apply support hand pinky pressure. And it's support hand pinky pressure, not firing hand pinky pressure. Right. Uh, and generally that will drop the dot down from 12. Uh, if you have more of an escalator type grip, it might be too low. You just need to bring it up to your eye with the gun flat. Uh, or if you're right handed, the gun's going to be to the left. Or if you're left handed, the gun's going to be to the right because you're not using your support hand properly, evening out the gun. And you're doing that punching out silliness. Stop punching out. Stop punching out. Just guide into it. Uh, I call the technique 80, 20, 90, 10, 95, 5. But just think about the last 10% of your presentation. Bleed off the energy so that the dot is not disturbed within your line of vision. And do that um, You know, on a target. Do it for about 50 repetitions over and over again. Knowing where the dot is when you can't find it. Make those proper adjustments and you'll be fine. Then once you get that, add some speed to it. Uh, take notes of where the dot is when you can't find it, make those proper adjustments and knowing that the whole thing is efficiency is what's going to help you find the dot course, uh, overlay that onto the target and be fast and accurate. I think one of my favorite things that you would do at your class as well is, you know, you'd catch people sort of searching for the dot They're, They have two mm-hmm. moving targets. The gun is moving towards their eye line, but then their eye line is moving. And you would ask mm-hmm. these students to point at something in the distance just with their finger. And this is something that any listener could do right now if they're driving down the road or, you know, just point at something in the distance and pay attention to the, where your head is and how your neck is moving, things like that. You're more than likely not driving your your head down you're not turtling you're not raising your shoulders up and when you're when you're pointing at something in the distance like a refined sight picture um you're just lifting your finger up to your eye line and uh that that seemed like it really clicked for a lot of students what are some other i guess uh, efficient ways of just explaining things that you see help students uh, a lot 
Well, so getting back to everything, right? Uh, everyday things that you do that for some reason, the way we used to teach firearms is completely counter to that, right? Uh, don't look at what you're shooting. Look at a front sight. Get, get, get rid of that. Okay. Uh, think about, again, like you just said, like I said, my class is about pointing at an object. Don't move your head. Don't move your shoulders. Your whole goal is to stop moving things, right? Which can be multiple moving axes. Uh, the only thing that you actually need to move elbows and hands up to your eye line while you're looking at the target, take notes of where the dot is specifically, make the proper adjustments in your grip and kind of go from there. Gotcha. Um, in regards to the draw, a lot of people struggle with that initially as, as their area where they could stand to benefit from more efficiency the most. Would you agree mm -hmm. with that? Um, what are a couple of things sure. that people can do to refine their draw, maybe make it a little bit more efficient uh, to maybe get down from, get under that two second mark and work their way towards that one second mark or sub second mark? Okay. So depending on where you want to begin, right? Um, so let's just go from reaction time. If, you're, if your whole thing is time, right? Uh, what most people don't know, if you're using a shot timer, the beep is 0.3 seconds. So if you go at the end of the beep, you're behind human reaction time 0 0.15, 0 0.2, right? If you go on the B of the beep, instead of the end of it, you're gonna pick up that 0 0.15, 0 0.2 and immediately be sooner, not necessarily faster, right? And what can you do? Just put your shot timer on delay and try and get your hand, remove your covered arm and get your hand to the gun. Or if you're going from three o'clock, just get your hand onto the gun before the beep ends. That right there will save you 0.15 to 0.2 right now, right? The next thing is video yourself, okay? Uh, set yourself up for a part-time that's going to induce some stress, right? If it's like, oh, I'm gonna set this part-time for three seconds. Well, that's not stressful. You don't wind up doing the goofy things when you're not under stress. So set it for a part-time, uh, that's a goal. If it's one, five, one, two, one, whatever, video yourself, right? And see all the extra things you are doing. Uh, one of my staff instructors, Hunter Freeland, uh, I've said this for years, but he put it eloquently and simply. When it comes to your draw, it's elbows forward. That's it. If anything else is moving other than your elbows to your hands, you're being inefficient and inefficiency leads to more time. Inefficiently leads to more erratic frenetic movement, which makes you not find the dot, right? So video yourself. And when you have a good rep, say that was a good rep and watch it over and over and then compare it to the ones that are not good reps. And now you know exactly what you need to eliminate to be consistently efficient with your draw. Excellent. Um, one of the things that I like the most about the dot is that it kind of acts like if you know what to look for, it will act as a little coach sitting right there on top of your gun. What are some things yep. that people can notice while they're shooting that the dot is doing that can kind of help them troubleshoot what they're doing incorrectly or less efficiently or, uh, you know, their grip, their trigger control, what have you? Oh, that's a, that's a myriad of things, right? So we'll just give a couple of examples. Well, we've got uh, plenty of time. Yeah. So as you're presenting, if you get to your point and your dot is like bouncing like that, that means you got too much energy at the end of your presentation, okay? Uh, if you uh, draw out and you still see your dot, but it's always off to the left, that means your support hand isn't doing enough. If, it, if you're right-handed, it's always to the right. That means your hands are splitting, right? You probably can't see that, but your hands are splitting and your thumbs are too far forward and that's pushing the gun to the right, right? Our whole thing is to have an uh, equal pressure on both sides of the gun with a stressor on the support hand, not the firing hand, so the firing hand can pull the trigger uh, efficiently and quickly um, as it needs to. Uh, but man, the dot will tell you a lot of things and 90% of the time, about 95% of the time, uh, it's all about your grip, right? Relax your firing hand, squeeze high up and back with your support hand and the dot will arrive where you want it to. I've heard you say several times that uh, dot skills are translational to iron sight skills, but iron sight mm -hmm. skills do not go back the same way. You can shoot a red dot and you'll automatically become better at irons, but you can't necessarily shoot irons and become better at a red dot. Why is that? Well, because in order to find your red dot, you have to be efficient, right? If, if, if there's one advantage that irons have over the dot, is that they're always in your peripheral while we're drawing, right? So you can line things up kind of in your periphery. But that's why everyone's draws with irons, not everyone, but a lot of people look like this. 
right? Because you can fix it on the way up. You can't do that with the dock because it's enclosed with an optic. So once you get that presentation wired, right, and you learn how to efficiently find the dot, whether it's dropping from 12 or raising from 6, however you present the gun, that efficiently will lead over to irons, making your index with irons better. Plus, with the dot, you, you're, you demand to see more. You are threat-focused. You demand to see more. And then what automatically, sort of automatically starts applying is you start doing a soft focus with your irons, with the, rear, with the front sight somewhere in the rear notch, but you're more target-focused through that efficiency. You get better with irons, all right? And then you go, ah, these, these things are silly. Let me go back to my dot. <laughs> and they also break. Um, and they also break. There was a, a high-profile shooting that happened recently in uh, Indiana where the, yep. um, the kid had, the, you know, he's the good guy with the gun, had a 40-yard shot that he hit, and it turned out that his irons that were on that gun were broken. He had gotten in, like, a motorcycle wreck, or his brother had gotten in a motorcycle wreck with the gun on not long before, and the sights never got fixed, and he was still able to hit with... Uh, with broken iron. So you are the fast coin holder of, uh, was it the 14th or the 15th fast coin? Um, number 15, technically number 16. If you count Tad Lewis greens as double ought. So gotcha. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. Uh, so originally there was the fast coin. Um, mm -hmm. there was, you know, there's been like the Gabe White's turbo pin, um, and then with the black belt standards, now there's all kinds of different instructors that have their different standards. Can you talk about the black belt standards, uh, what they are and kind of how they came to be? Sure. So everybody likes standards, right? They want a, a measurable uh, bellwether of progress. Unfortunately, we didn't have a lot of that in firearms industry, right? You look at anything, right? You look in the military, you look at police, there's ranks, right? You look at martial arts, there's belt ranks, um, you know, corporate America, there's titles and stuff. So everybody wants a degree of measure to see if they're actually getting better, right? Um, so I came up with this, and then when I came up with that, they were based on drills that I did in class that I thought pushed red dot performance that were iron sight standards, right? Because back then, dots are slower than, than irons, right? So that's, that's, so that's what I picked. Uh, the three and two, using gross sight pictures to refine sight pictures, that was created uh, by uh, former Delta operator Paul Howe. Um, the one shot drill, you know, the one shot has always been a standard. How quickly can you get out that gun? Because while it may not matter that much in competition, it matters in self-defense, right? Uh, first shot usually is a high uh, indicator of who's going to win that fight, you know, and one second had always been that standard. The build drill is the classic performance standard. So that's in there. And then adding in distance, um, you know, uh, the 1.5 do it A zone. I basically took the Tula principle that says uh, humans with irons should strive to hit an A zone at seven yards in 1.5 seconds. So I'm like, all right, well, red dot master race, man, let's back this thing up to almost four times the distance and do it in the same time. Uh, so that's, 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 that's where they came from. And right now I believe we have 30 patches out there shared between 23 or 24 people. Um, and I think the patch has been in effect now for four and a half years. So, yeah. Very cool. And your last one you gave out, the guy was from a level three holster. Is that right? Yeah, it was a level three holster. ALS, wow. SLS, Safari Land. Yep. And That's he didn't need, he didn't need the extra time that I give, the point extra one that I give for a level three retention. He didn't need it. So. How many repeat students do you have that maybe didn't get it the first time, wind up getting it when they come back the second time? So one, two, I think I only have two, maybe three recipients that got it their first try. Hmm. Everyone else got it on their subsequent second or third try. So you, as I had mentioned in your introduction, you have um, like Donovan's point one tactics standard. Um, what are some other standards that you have kind of on your radar that you want to shoot for or that maybe you've gotten recently? Okay. None. I mean, there's, uh, there's some, there's some other ones I have out there, you know, the Raven wing one, which is pretty spicy out there. Um, you know, I'd like to do, since I have one, uh, I did it. Donovan has four stages of his standards. I did his from near to far. Uh, I want to get another one going far 15 yards and in, in reverse. Cause the only way you can get a second one. Uh, no, my goals right now are this right now that I'm starting to get my schedule worked out a little bit and, um, got some space planned in there. Uh, I have 
two goals, right? Uh, training with a lot of people, right? I haven't been training because I'm so busy, but now I got to get back after it. Uh, training with people, going to make my comeback to competition. Um, you know, I'm a master class in carry optics, but I got that. I think I made master in 2017. So it's, it's been a while. Uh, no, I'm sorry, 2018, 2018. So it's been a while. So I'm training with guys like again, Donovan Moore, Billy Barton. I'm training with Mike Seeklander, Sean Griffith, uh, in the next couple of months and stuff. We're going to get the, uh, movement thing down, which is the hardest thing to retain and keep, but probably the most important thing in USPSA. Um, going to start doing a little IDPA and get back into competition. Uh, so those are the standards that I'm going to go after, right? And the only way is up and, you know, to make grandmaster and, shoot matches and have have fun doing it and get better doing it and learn more from it that I can share with my students. Awesome. Why would you say that movement is the hardest? You'd mentioned that. So why do you think that movement is the hardest to retain? Well, so for me, you know, uh, if your audience follows me, they know I'm no spring chicken. I just turned 53 and I had very bad knees before. And then those are now I have new knees and dropping weight and stuff like that. Um, Look, shooting, um, while it's still hard to do, it's the heaviest lifting part, you know, um, people will disagree with me and that's fine. But my best friend, AJ Zito disagrees with me all the time, but JJ Ricasa agrees with me. Uh, USPSA is a movement sport with shooting, right? So if the, if that's, if I'm right, then the movement part's the most important part, learning how to enter and exit, you know, how to distribute, you know, your stance, your weight, whatever, based on the scenario, um, how to get the gun up early as possible, how to explode out of positions, how to stop quickly, you know. And um, I am very fortunate that I know a lot of most of the high level competitors out there and I can reach out to them and go do private training sessions when my time allows. Uh, I had the, you know, um, acquaintances, the funds and all that other stuff to do that. So we're gonna make a good run. It's going to be a lot of fun. Awesome. Um, this is kind of a two part question. What would you ask a person who is going to come to your class? What would you ask that they know before they show up to your class? Cause sometimes we'll have people write in and be like, well, I'm not good enough to go to X class or, you know, I'll, I'll look foolish if I show up to this class and I can't do X, Y, or Z. What would you want them to know? The four firearms rules of safety. And that's it. <laughs> that's, that is pretty much it. I, I would have asked that you've taken one class before. You know what I mean? Um, what level of class? Like, an, would, does like an NRA certification class work for you? or Like an NRA instructor certification class or something yeah, like that? Yeah, well, they have like a marksmanship a... class, I, I believe, and you know some other kind of very intro level uh, carry pistol classes and things like that. Pistol for home defense, I thought maybe. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yep, that'd be fine. A USCCA class and stuff like that. Just somewhere yeah. where you learn uh, range etiquette more than anybody else, right? Because it doesn't matter. Like if you've, if you've been shooting for six months, but you're safe, you know, to keep the muzzle down range, you know how to safely reload and you keep your finger up the trigger when appropriate and yada, yada, yada. Um, and you listen to my rules and range commands, you'll be absolutely, you'll be absolutely fine. All the way to if you're, you know, if you're a uh, experienced, you know, uh, LA range cadre or grandmaster, you just want to learn how I teach things, right? I'll have something for everybody. Okay. And then the second part of that question is, uh, where should people go after your class? If they've taken your class, where would you recommend that they go? Maybe some other instructors or, or something that you could name? Sure. Sure. And by no, by no means is exclusion into this, that you should not go to the people's classes that I have not mentioned. Right. Uh, but like everyone else, I'm, I'm biased, right. Uh, the people that you should train with, AJ Zito, especially if you're running a 1911, 2011 platform, you need to go train with AJ Zito, right? Um, uh, Donovan Moore, right? There's a lot of overlap between what Donovan and I teach, right? But he gets more into the performance side of things, um, even more to a, to a, the next level than what I do as far, as far as trigger manipulation and things of that nature. So it's a it's it's same same but different, right? Mm -hmm. um, JJ Ricasa. Right. Uh, Multi-time national champion, world champion, the nicest guy on the face of the earth. Uh, if you're looking for uh, going outside of the performance world and more on the tactical side of things, there's there's a whole bunch of a man. Um, 
Dan Brokos, uh, Jared Reston, Bill Blowers, uh, you know, everybody on the, on the, uh, defense, you know, uh, defense division team is someone you can absolutely go train with as far as that goes. You know what I mean? Um, don't stop there, man. You know, get outside of guns, mm-hmm. get in the medical, carry Davis, uh, Lone Star Medical. Uh, learn how to do it with your hands, man. Start training jujitsu. We laugh at you mortals, as I'm sure Bill Rapier will tell you as well. You know, you're more likely to do it with your hands than you are with your gun. So take up a martial art starting with jujitsu. Yeah, starting with jujitsu, awesome. right? Um, so yeah, those are those are the people. That's a long that's a long enough list, man. You'll uh, you'll be good there. You'll be good there. Uh, so a lot of detractors of the things that you teach, uh, I guess I, I would hear things said based around mostly like your your cheater draw. Can you explain what the cheater draw is and why uh, it's not necessarily an indication of, of someone cheating. Cheating might actually be a bad word for it, in my opinion, but it, no, it it's explain a, to the listener what that is. Yeah, so a cheater draw is basically, uh, you're standing in upright position um, uh, from AIWB, right? Your firing hand is covered over your support hand, just with your hands hanging. There. Some, everyone has shot or stood like that before, right? But what advantage can you give yourself to remove uh, variables since your firing hand is covering your support hand, you can pre-grab your shirt, right? Now, I'm not saying get a whole handful bunch of it over. I'm just saying all I do is I take my index and my thumb, and my index finger and my thumb on my support hand, and just pinch it so I remove that variable, right? People don't like that, but here's the thing, man. If you look at that uh, video of the, uh, that white settlement shirt shooting in Texas, the security detail on the outside of the pews were all standing that way. If they were carrying appendix, they would have had to do that four o'clock fisherman vest sweep that they had to do to get their guns out, right? And here's the thing I'm going to ask everybody. If you knew something was coming, you knew an altercation was coming or had a high likely to, wouldn't you get every advantage possible, including cheating? Hmm. What would you say to people who say that like, well, you wouldn't telegraph a punch. That's telegraphing that you're going to draw a gun. That's yeah. I love when those people go because they're wrong, right? For example, there is a difference between telegraphing and being prepared, right? For example, I'll ask the entire audience: You've been in a fist fight before, right? If you haven't, immediately become become a mediator, go into a fist fight, right? But when you started that fist fight, where were your hands? Were your hands up or were they down? You got into that fight. Be up. Yeah. Be, oh, stop doing that. You're telegraphing. Well, of course I'm telegraphing because I don't want to get punched in the face. There is a balance between telegraphing, right, and being prepared. My hands are up. I am telegraphing that I'm about to throw hands. Yes, but I'm prepared so I don't get punched in the face. You do whatever you want to do, right? But everybody knows out there that if Scott has his firing hand covering his support hand, something very quick is about to happen, you need to make your decision from there. Gotcha. I, I also like using it as kind of a training tool. It, it will allow a student to feel, usually for the first time, what speed feels like because it shaves right. off a free one to two tenths of a second. So it's like maybe you don't want to use that draw. Like I wouldn't judge right. them if they did or they didn't, but it, let's try it for now. You can see what speed feels like. You can see it on the timer. Um, and, and, you know, it kind of gets you to that starting position where your hand is already on the gun and you're like, oh, I actually can reach my gun before the P and beep. Right. Um, exactly. Just... Or, or, or the, um, the hypocritical things we do in training, right? For example, if you've ever seen a, uh, beginning NRA or USCCA class, right? And the student comes and they're not from concealment, the gun's at three o'clock outside the waistband, right? When they start going through the one, two, three, four positions, Right. It, they put their hand on the gun, then they go to number two, and they go to number three, and then they go to extension on number four, right? Where do they always start with? Their hand on the gun, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? They don't go, get your hand off the gun, you know, be, stand like Yosemite Sam. They start with on the gun. If you want to use this as a training thing, that's what we're doing. We're just eliminating the variable of you missing your cover garment, and then you can take it from wherever you want from there. Actually brings up another point. Um, you're known as an appendix carry guy. You're an AIWB yep. guy. You have your own AIWB signature holster from Tier One Concealment. Um, would you be comfortable teaching somebody if they showed up three, four o'clock carry? Is that still okay to show up to a Modern Samurai Project class if they carry three, four o'clock? Sure, they do it all the time. I'll tell them why it is 
uh, structurally inferior to appendix, but then at the end of the day, they're Americans, they do what they want, right? I'll tell them from retention purposes, right? From getting the gun out purposes, from getting the gun out in the car purposes, that it is structurally uh, and efficiently an inferior way compared to AIWB. But yeah, it's easy to teach them. You do what you want. So, If there were people listening that wanted to maybe see some examples of people who are still fast from three, four o'clock carry, uh, who, yep. who comes to mind for you? Uh, Chris Woomer and Mike Green. Bill Rapier as well. You should see him shoot from uh, three, four o'clock. He's very, you know, you're probably right, but I haven't, I haven't spent a lot of time with Bill. So that's why he didn't come to mind, but yeah. Okay. Bill Rapier. Yeah. We need to all, we need to all get together and have a big range day uh, at some point, just a big defense division range day. That'd be awesome. But um, yeah, Yeah, it really is a sight to behold. Um, But it took a considerable amount more work. I I do believe that it's easier to become quick from appendix than uh, efficiently than it is to become quick from three, four o'clock. You're should you that. learn? Should you learn how to draw from three o'clock from conceal? Absolutely. In case whatever clothing you're wearing does not lend to AIWB uh, suits, whatever stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go back uh, to the beginning of the interview when we were talking about um, you know what. Uh, what students will learn in your class. And you talked a little bit about modulation. You said, you, you know, you've got like the, uh, the 80, 20, the 85, uh, 15, and then, you know, mm-hmm. the 90, 10, and then the 95, five, uh, can you go in a little more detail as to what that is? Cause that was something that took, I think two iterations of your class for me to actually grab it and be like, Oh, this yeah. is what he's talking about. Yeah. It's so it's funny. Like one of the things I always say is like the body works the way the body works. Right. And people from different areas who have never collaborated on anything, come up with the same thing. You know, I found out later on AJ or not, sorry, uh, JJ Rakaza talks about the 80, 20, 90, 10. I'd never taken a JJ Rakaza class and he came up with it as well. On the other hand, all of that is a personification of Fitz law, F I T T S, uh, second word law where that, uh, absolute speed and aiming cannot be done at the same time right now that doesn't mean slow down and get your hits all right it doesn't mean that it just means that go fast where you're not aiming and be careful where you're aiming depending on your skill level and the size of the target the distribution between that changes okay so uh for example let's say you're doing a draw and you have to hit a one inch square at 10 yards. Are you going to punch out and go to work? No. So what I say to do is go through 80% of your draw as quickly as you possibly can. And in the last 20%, bleed off that steam, prep the trigger. So when the dot arrives, there's no energy you can pull the trigger. Based on the size of the target, right, which may be effectuated by the actual size of the target or distance, right? Uh, what do I mean by that? What's an A zone look like at 30 yards? A head box. What's a head box look like at 30 yards? A one inch square. So size of target is effectuated by distance, right? Um, but if you're up close at five or seven yards, you got an A zone, man, rip that thing out 95.5. But you still got to do that last 5% because if you don't, you're going to do a 120 minus 30 at 14 divided by two, which is the formula for punching out, right? So... Uh, to reiterate what the 80-20 is, just think about going as efficiently, but as violently and as quickly as you possibly can to 80% of your total presentation and then bleeding off steam until that dot arrives to where you want it to and you pull the trigger. Think about the way you stop at a stop sign, right? Nobody sees the stop sign and gets right to it and it hits on the brakes, at least not since you were 15, right? You right, you take off the brakes and you ease into that. Depending on how much time you have is how hard or how lightly you uh, depress your brakes so that when you get to the stop sign, there is no energy. Think about that in your draw. So that's probably the best way we're going to explain that audibly, you know, so. No, I mean, I think that makes sense. It allows the dot to arrive quickly, but with grace on your target. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And depending on your level of skill, for example, you know, me and my buddy Tim Heron talk about that all the time. For a beginning person, that 80-20 might be, you know, two feet in duration. Mm-hmm. For for him, the 80-20 is two inches in duration because he's such right. a high-level three-division grandmaster, 
right? But the application is the same. It's just the level of skill uh, lets him bleed off steam much later in his presentation as opposed to someone who's new. Okay. Um, let's get into trigger work. As far as trigger control, what do you, what do you teach uh, for somebody who's maybe – you know, just beating the crap out of their trigger or it's disturbing their sight picture. Is there anything that you prescribe for someone who's doing that or maybe one of your ways, not the way, but a way to. Yeah. Uh, to yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's, there's, so there's three things that I teach in my class, four things that I teach in my class, right? Number one, stop pinning and resetting the trigger to the click. It's worthless. It's a bad habit and it does you no good. Second thing, right? Before we get to trigger, uh, 50 to 90% of your accuracy has to do with your support hand grip, right? Uh, grip is the low hanging fruit. Fix that first before you start worrying about trigger. Okay. In my opinion, uh, trigger work, depending on the size of the target, depending on how quickly you need to get your work done, learn how to slap the trigger, right? Uh, without disturbing the sights. Right? Also maybe learn how to prep the trigger in case it is a super, super, uh, small target where you have to pull the trigger and you can't have any disturbance, right? Uh, and I go through both, right? I go through both of how to get to the final wall on a one-inch square at about three yards, right? And how to put it into the one-inch square every single time. And then we'll go to a three-by-five and learn how to slap that thing, uh, almost producing the same groups. But depending on the size of the target, how quickly you need to get your work done, learn how to uh, prep the trigger or learn how to slap that thing. Awesome. But all gets but all gets back to grip. Do you recommend people use like grip strengthener trainers or anything like that? Or how do you how do you recommend that people build up their support hand grip? Uh, take a class from somebody that has a great grip. Not everybody has the same grip, right? Uh, there's a whole bunch of different grips out there. My grip, Blower's grip, Rapier's grip, Proctor's grip, uh, Vogel's grip. Uh, find the one that resonates with you, with your hand size and your gun and all that stuff, what resonates that you can learn it quickly, um, and learn how to relax your firing hand and squeeze the crap out of the gun with your support hand in an efficient manner, how you apply it. That's up to you. I show you the way I grip the gun, but that may not, you know, directly, uh, resonate with you. So you talked a little bit about, uh, videotaping yourself so that people can kind of learn their inefficiencies and things like that. Um, what are some other tools that you have used to increase your level of efficiency with firearms? Well, um, well, first of all, the whole thing goes back to you're doing that dry fire. So we can assume that dry fire is one of the most important things there is out there. It's free, right? And you get so much information because uh, you're not restricted with uh, the, the direction in which the bullets are coming. You know what I mean? You can videotape yourself in your own controlled environment. Um, yeah. So I don't know if there's anything more importantly, dry fire or videoing yourself to help you get those efficiencies. Um, I, I can explain how to do it and what I, I tell people to do. Right. Uh, especially like, let's just say doing it on the draw. Okay. So you set your part time, right. Also get a shot timer. Uh, you set your part time, set it on a delay. Uh, if you're right-handed, set the video, set your phone up or your video, uh, apparatus right at 10 if you're left-handed you set it up at two that way you're getting the support hand side of you right uh when it happens right do your draw and what you're going to say is a couple things number one got the dot got the time or uh or sorry got the dot got the time that's a perfect scenario or got the time but didn't get the dot or got the dot and didn't get the time, right? Do that for like 20, 30 reps, then take the video, put it on a bigger screen, go watch that and compare your got the dot and got the time stuff with the other two examples where you came up a little bit short. What you'll realize is that you're doing extra stuff, right? You're moving your eye line, you're moving the shoulder, taking you away from the gun, you're leaning forward, right? And then fix it. And the important part about that whole process is that you already know you can do it. So just do that thing where you were successful and stop doing the thing where you weren't successful, right? And in that, and honestly, in half an hour, a person can become so much better and then they can look for more performance stuff, going on the B, not the P, right? Being primed in their energy, being violent on the draw, but without being too tense, 
Okay. Those type of nebulous things you're only going to get through your own dry fire practice. They can't be taught. That's interesting you say that. One of our performance division shooters is Jay Beal, uh, who's mm-hmm. one of the most uh, dry firingest fellas I've ever I've ever known. He's almost <laughs> oh, famous yeah. for dry firing more than anyone. Why is it that Jay Beal can become uh, top ten in the nation two years in a row back to back? Uh, using only dry fire, almost only dry fire. He live fires very little in comparison to his dry fire. And then conversely, there are guys who shoot 50, 60,000 rounds a year that can't even come close to Jay's level. Why is that? Because USPSA is a movement sport with shooting. So you're saying that he's just, he's learning more of his movement and stuff like that. He's, that's what he's using his dry fire practice more than where somebody who is live firing is, is just not doing enough movement practice. They're focusing too much on yeah. the shooting. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm being sarcastic in that. Of course, it's a shooting sport, right? But I think the movement part is more important. Now, that being said, Jay, Jay is a phenom. He's one of probably the most um, dedicated people, right, uh, that I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, his everything, his draw, his reloads, good God, those reloads, right? But once you understand the shooting part, okay, once you understand how to draw the gun, how to reload, how to get a good grip, how to pull the trigger, depending on the size of the target and stuff like that. After that, it's about getting the most efficient movement and being in the most stable position that is being offered to you at the time to then pull the trigger, right? Mm-hmm. Uh in a in a unbothered way for lack of a better term right and what jay has done and through his practice i think has just given himself such an incredible foundation of not only manipulations but movement to the shooting is the easy part right Mm -hmm. you never when you watch jay practice or shoot matches do you rarely you rarely see i'm going to say sub 18 splits do you ever see that I don't, no, no. I've I, I got to watch him actually in person at nationals this year, and right. uh, his shooting. Uh, and I'm I'm using a poor term here. His shooting appears to the untrained eye as unremarkable. It's right. obviously and it's obviously incredible, but it doesn't right. look like he's a machine gun out there. He's he's just right. shooting deliberately and with focus. But the movement but then, is where he's he yeah jumps ahead of everyone. But then you watch him like laterally spider crawl without changing levels into a perfect stop position so that he can have those unremarkables. Like you can, you can, Hey, you can make up 0.1, right. By shooting 15 splits, or you can make up 0.1 by getting quicker and out of position. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reason why Jay is going to be a national champion is because he can do both and he just keeps on getting better and better and better. And he's one of the most humble people on the face of the earth uh, who, who's never satisfied for his own uh, accomplishment, you know, so. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I think I had a, it was explained to me at one point that the game of USPSA supposes that you can shoot. Like, it assumes you can shoot. What's yeah. going to set you apart is your movement in between the shooting. You, you have to be able to shoot or you're not going to get anywhere. But that's kind of step one is is that you know how to shoot and hit a target right and it becomes chaining yep. those targets together uh learning how to stage plan and and things like that so so you said earlier that you are a master class shooter and now you have goals to kind of to kind of get back into it so what what is the level of importance uh for competition for you all right so why is competition going to make you a better shooter okay it's going to put you into uh situations positions scenarios uh, that you're never going to dream up on your own, okay? Uh, also, there's no excuses in competition, right? Uh, you have all these other people that put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you, and they perform things that you can't, right? Some people get discouraged and never go to a competition again. Other people are like, oh, my God, I went to this match, and that 70-year-old dude put down his oxygen mask, and beat the crap out of me. How did he do that, right? And you're only going to get that through competition. You're also only going to get through competition, right? Uh, is that uh, that that stress, that anxiety, that lightning, right? To where you see how you can perform under stress. Stress inoculation is not a mindset thing. It's like today I will not be 
uh, induced by stress to do what I don't want to do in any way. No, you have to go through it over and over and over again, right? To the point where you've seen something 10,000 times before. And because you've seen it 10,000 times before, you ain't going to be nervous, right? That kind of sounds like why most people listening to this podcast, right? And why most people buy Walters are there for self-defense, to be in situ to be in situations without risk so that if there is a situation with risk they've done it 10,000 times before right practically uh, and there's no other way to do that other than the competition right now let's say you're busy right let's say you dry fire you go to the range uh, you decide you're going to learn how to do it with your hands so you're going to jujitsu now you got to go to a match on top of it uh, give it a whirl but if not Competition is more than just USPSA, IDPA, three gun steel challenge. Get three of your buddies that shoot as good as you, if not better. Pick a drill. There's thousands of drills on the internet and bet pizza, beer, bragging rights, make a tiny little trophy saying, you know, head dude in charge or something like that and go compete with them. Right. Uh, classic example, man, you and our friend Chris Fortney. Right. You two got to a pretty good level, a pretty efficient level, doing nothing but talking crap to each other and doing drills with each other. Right. Yep. That's a classic example, man. Classic example. You two were already scary the first time I met you because of that relationship, that competitive relationship that you had. Yeah. Who is it says competition breeds greatness? Yeah. hundred percent. Well, awesome, Scott. Well, uh, that about does it for our time on this episode. Um, where can people go to learn more about you? Yep. Uh, just Google Modern Samurai Project. It'll come up on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, everywhere. ModernSamuraiProject.com is the main hub. So, Awesome. I'll give you a little bit of time here, too, to, uh, to plug your, let's see, you've got your Monsoon Tactical. Uh, he does your pistols, right? Your PDP signature pistol? Yep. Does that. Yep, then... Tier 1 has my uh, concealment, whole AIW concealment holster that is universal based on the weapon light that you choose. Um you know, I have other sponsors, uh, CNH Precision, Big Tech's Ordnance. The list goes on and on. Just go to my Instagram. You'll see all my sponsors, man. We don't, we don't need to make this too capitalistic. <laughs> gotcha. Well, Scott, we, uh, we are obviously huge fans of yours here at Walther. Uh, personally, I love you. You're a fantastic friend. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll have you back again here real soon. Uh, for the listener, our next episode is going to be Taylor Weldon. And then the following one after that is going to be Jay Beal. So that will be November and December's episodes. Uh, Scott, we thank you again, and we will talk to you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Walther Radio. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. At Walther Arms, it's our duty to create the world's best performing firearms. It's your duty to be ready. Thanks again for listening.